Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If this podcast has helped you gain an interest in conductors and conducting, may I suggest you can learn even more by subscribing to my Patreon page. With six different levels to choose from, you get the chance to read articles, listen to two new series of interviews, take part in group Zoom meetings, personal Zoom meetings with myself, and even get the chance to have conducting lessons from me. Details are in the show notes below, and I'd love to get to know more of you personally when you subscribe at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who won the Malco competition in 2009. He is the music director of the Phoenix Orchestra of Boston, and is just coming to the end of his time as artistic director of the Lausanne Chamber Orchestra. He also writes and hosts one of the most successful classical music podcasts. It's a great pleasure to welcome Joshua Weilerstein. Josh, wonderful to speak to you today. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Um, I know that during lockdown, many of us have been doing different things. Uh, I'm going to conducting. I haven't looked at a single score. Um, <laughs> I wonder whether you have... But I know you've been busy doing other things. For instance, you've performed all of Bartok's 44 duos for two violins with 44 different violinists. That must have taken some organising, maybe a little bit of practising as well. But what else have you been doing? And uh, how did you come about that idea? Um, yeah, I've actually been quite busy, uh, despite not having any actual conducting work during the pandemic. Um, but it's been quite wonderful to be home, of course, kind of recognizing the privilege of being able to say that. Um, it's actually the most time that my wife and I have ever spent together in our whole relationship. <laughs> um, so that's been really wonderful in a way. Um, in terms of studying, I just started studying a, a few weeks ago because um, my first concerts are in September um, with the Beethoven cycle in Lausanne. And um, as soon as it hit July 1st, suddenly September 1st seemed much closer. Um, and I, fe I felt like I needed to really get back with all of those and actually learning all of them at the same time. Obviously, just the, the amount of notes is, is, you know, quite daunting. So I've been going through those, um, but at a more relaxed pace than I normally study at, which has been really wonderful. I've been able to dig in a lot deeper. Yeah. Um, in terms of the Bartok, um, that was right at the beginning of all of this when we really didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, it looked like we might not have concerts for two years at that point. And um, I was just trying to think of ways to connect musically with friends. And my original idea was to do um, the duos with my, my dad. Mm. And then I thought, actually, why don't I do it with my dad as one of the duos, but with uh, all violinists from all around the world, all my friends and colleagues who I've worked with. And um, I didn't know if it would work, but I sent a million Facebook messages and emails and Twitter DMs to people. And, you know, people really got super excited about it. And it took a lot of work, um, but I, it was one of the more, surprisingly enough, one of the more musically gratifying experiences I've had in, mm. in years. Well, if I'd have known, uh, <laughs> I might have even practiced um, <laughs> and come and join you. Um, so the violin, obviously, is something you still play. And I am assuming yeah. it would be the, the instrument you started on. Would I be right? How did music first come into your childhood? Yeah, I did start on the violin. Um, I grew up in an extremely musical family. Uh, my father violinist um, and was the first violinist of the Cleveland Quartet for 20 years and um, then uh, became a wonderful violin teacher um, at the 
Cleveland Institute of Music and New England Conservatory of Music and the Juilliard School. And my mom is a pianist, wonderful chamber musician, teacher. Um, she teaches piano, collaborative piano and chamber music at NEC now as well. Um, my sister is a wonderful cellist uh, who's played all around the world. So I, I grew up obviously with music all around me. Um, mm-hmm. I though played the violin much more as a hobby. Um, I didn't take it nearly as seriously as my sister did. Um, my sister, I think, basically knew she wanted to be a professional cellist from the time she put her hands on the cello the first time. Um, and I certainly didn't want that at first. Um, so yeah, the, at, at the beginning, the violin was was no more than a, a hobby and something I did. I always joked, I did it 25 minutes a day, five days a week, three seasons a year, because every <laughs> summer it just went in the case and I didn't touch it. Mm. <laughs> and you, yeah, you'd be outside doing sports and activities and yeah I, I mean I, you know I was much the same exactly. when it came around to summer I was going to play cricket and that was the end of it and, you know, if there was practice, <laughs> practice to be done tough I wasn't you know, <laughs> it right, wasn't going right, to stop right. me yeah yeah um and so what changed all of that what changed your attitude from thinking well it's something it's a bit of fun it's a nice hobby to have what changed that um, so when I was 14, my parents moved to Boston. Um, they were teaching at Cleveland Institute and then they moved to teach at NEC. And um, one of the ways my parents thought I could make new friends was to join the Youth Philharmonic Orchestra, um, which was conducted at that time by Benjamin Zander. Um, and I had refused in Cleveland to join the Cleveland Orchestra Youth Orchestra. First of all, because I didn't think I was good enough, but also because uh, the rehearsals were on the weekends and they were four hours long. And I didn't want to give up four hours of my weekend to have an orchestra rehearsal. Mm. So one of the ways that my parents convinced me to join the Youth Philharmonic Orchestra in Boston was that the rehearsals were only two and a half hours long. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, I can I can deal with that for a Saturday. Also, I wanted to make friends. Um, and so I, I joined this orchestra. And at first, to be honest, and Ben will say the same thing, I wasn't really that excited about it. And I sat, I was back in the... I was basically an outer space in the back of the second violin section um, because I never practiced and my audition was horrible. Um, And, but slowly I started really falling in love with it and really enjoying playing. I still didn't consider doing it professionally, but I I really enjoyed playing. Um, And then we went on a tour of Panama and Guatemala, um, which was sort of what I call a light bulb moment for me because we played for thousands of kids who had never seen a symphony orchestra before. Um, Mm. And their kind of euphoric reaction to especially things like La Valse and the William Tell Overture, um, it it was a kind of, I think partly because I grew up surrounded by so many musicians, it wasn't unusual to me to see musicians react, you know, ecstatically to music, but to Mm. see kids who had never heard music react that way, that was a new experience for me. Um, so I got really excited by that. And that same summer, I went to the Greenwood Music Camp, um, which is in a tiny town in Massachusetts called Cummington, of all places. Mm-hmm. And um, this was, it's a, basically a chamber music camp for high school students. Um, and that was another one of those experiences where I suddenly was around a lot of people my age who just loved music so much. And that summer, sort of, that became the, the moment where I decided this is actually what I wanted to do. It's amazing, isn't it, how something like a youth orchestra that you join, and especially a tour, um, I mean, it's just going slightly off track for a minute. You know, I, I conducted a youth orchestra recently, 
Um, mm. uh, and and I'd heard that some of the managers managers above the youth orchestra, basically the cut the bean counters and the money counters, were dead against the, the youth orchestra touring because they just said it was a jolly for the teachers, um, which right. they, you know they had no idea that what touring can bring to a young musician and that bonding exactly. experience over the rehearsal process and then one or two weeks away on the road and staying in hotels or even in, you know, athletes camps or wherever it is you're staying, it can be a moment that changes somebody's life forever. Um, I, I remember my Absolutely. first major tour was to Brazil in 1986 with my county orchestra. Mm -hmm. And you'll, I'll never forget that. Never forget that. Uh, yeah. And it's such a shame that it seems to be nothing to do with the pandemic, but it seemed to be something that was, gently being eroded over time over the last 10 to 15 to 20 years and it and it's such a shame i think i mean this is maybe a controversial opinion but i think that youth orchestras would be better off touring than some professional orchestras um in just in terms of the experience that it can provide um i i don't know i might have become a musician without that tour but um it, I certainly would have had a less rich childhood. I was so lucky to have gone to that. And then we went two years later to Venezuela, which was another life-changing experience in another completely different way. Mm. So yeah, those tours for me uh, were unbelievably special in a way that professional orchestra tours that I've been on have not been, you know, they've been wonderful and exciting and fantastic to travel and see new places and to play in, in new halls. But in terms of that fundamental life experience, those tours, I'll never forget those. No, I think you're right. It is a life experience. And a professional tour, depending on where, the, the, where you're touring and what the program is and who you're conduct, who's conducting, if you're in the orchestra or what you're conducting, if you're the conductor, can sometimes feel more mundane. Let's put it that way. Less of a life-changing thing. Absolutely. So... After your touring, um, New England Conservatory, I read, uh, was where you studied violin, but you also studied conducting, I read. Um, at what point did, did conducting sort of first enter into your thought processes as a teenager? Um, so when I was a freshman um, in, at New England Conservatory on the violin, uh, we had a conductor named Ludovic Morlo, um, mm, who yeah. I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with. Um, and he was at that time the assistant conductor of the Boston Symphony. Um, and so I think he took the job conducting the freshman orchestra at NEC, um, you know, just for some experience, some extra money, I don't know. Um, and he, he had a tough time because it was a really, an orchestra full of a lot of people who didn't want to be in an orchestra and he really had to work to get anything to sound out of that. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, he really worked in a way like a conductor. And I never, I, I had worked with a wonderfully inspiring musician in Ben Zander, but Ben doesn't work like a normal quote unquote conductor. Mm. And Ludovic did. And I was very inspired by both sort of models. And I started talking to Ludovic a little bit. I just asked him a few questions and he said, you know, just go watch a lot of videos um, because conducting is very difficult to teach, as I'm sure you know as well. Mm. Um, and just see, you know, see what it, how it feels like. What does it look like to you? Um, and so... I checked out a recording, um, a video, DVD at the time, of Carlos Kleiber conducting the Brahms Second Symphony in Mozart 36 with the Vienna Philharmonic. Mm, um, iconic video. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I'm sure a video many of your listeners are familiar with. Mm, um, yeah. And as I was checking out the DVD, a guy was standing next to me, and he, I know him, and he said, have you seen that before? I said, no. He said, well, it's about to change your life. 
And um, I saw him a week later and he said, well, what did you think? And I said, you were right. <laughs> um, I just never had thought of conducting as being possible that way. Mm. Um, and so I started becoming more interested in it. I got a group of friends together to do Beethoven one, not knowing how difficult of a piece it was. <laughs> um, you know, so actually all those famous, the beginning of the first movement, the beginning of the last movement, those famous difficult, uh, conducting excerpts, I was so naive. I didn't know they were difficult. So they were easy at the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, and now, now they're hard. Um, <laughs> And um, so, and then just sort of from there, I, I started being more and more interested in conducting and basically bribing my friends with pizza and beer to get them to play, uh, to read through symphonies with me. Isn't it amazing that, well, the naivety of youth is a, you know, is a phrase that is often used. I do a, a summer course with the CBSO Youth Orchestra and part of that course is that uh, we offer the chance for students to conduct it if they want to for yeah. 20 or 30 minutes. And mm. they can choose whatever repertoire they like. And uh, I had an email come through and, some, and somebody had asked to conduct Beethoven 5, and that's which I emailed back to the management and said, well, let's, let's see what that's going to be like. Um, <laughs> and it was the first time he'd ever conducted an orchestra and he chose just the beginning of Beethoven 5, which, <laughs> which is an astonishing choice. And as you've just said, you know, yeah. the opening of Beethoven 1 is just, it's so difficult technically to do, yeah. but I mean, like Beethoven 5. Um, but, you know, with the, the naivety and sort of bravado of, of youth, uh, you, you could sort of get through it, can't you? Um, it's yeah. only later you realise, my God, what was I doing? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I actually re uh, recently, I did dug up the video of that performance. That was my first ever conducting performance. And I mean, there are things that I do naturally that I can't do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> because if I overthink it, you know, I, it just doesn't happen. And I watched that opening of the first woman and I'm like, how did I do that? So who was teaching you at uh, NEC? Um, was it Ludovic or was there a, a specific conducting teacher there? Um, at the time, there wasn't a conducting program at NEC uh, in, in for undergraduate studies. So what I did was I took a course called Wind Ensemble Conducting with a teacher named Bill Drury. Um, the thing is that Bill was very smart about the way he taught it and he allowed people to do things that weren't just wind ensemble conducting. Mm. So. I did a lot of different things and I ended up finishing that semester with uh, the Rite of Spring, um, which of course I couldn't conduct at all, but it was a fantastic experience to try it. Um, and so I studied with him for a while and then there was a sort of, there was a point where there was kind of like a crossroads, like what am I going to do? Should I try to study both? Mm. Um, and that, that is what I ended up doing was applying for the graduate program, which Hugh Wolf had just started at NEC, I was, the, I was in the inaugural class of his conducting program. Um, so I was very lucky that that appeared just as I was finishing my undergrad. Mm. Well, I, I played for Hugh Wolf many times. He came to Birmingham um, yeah. during my time as a player. Uh, lovely man, uh, really enjoyed his conducting. What was he like as a teacher? Um, fantastic, just, you know, I had a lot of instinct in conducting and I had no know-how. Mm. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, as we were saying. I didn't understand what was working and what wasn't. I didn't know how to study a score. 
um, I was very behind on transpositions on, on really like the nuts and bolts, the basics of Kandaipain. And Hugh, which I think is one of the best things about his teaching is that he recognizes what each individual student needs and he teaches that. So he saw that I needed help on the fundamentals basically and on the basics. And he walked me through all of that. He taught me how to study a score in terms of structure. Um, and I still use most of his principles to this day on how to learn a score. Um, and so, you know, that was fantastic. And then also more than the actual just studying with him one-on-one -on -one was watching him rehearse with mm. the orchestras at NEC. Um, he is just a remarkably inspiring musician because he is quite normal as a person, which is unusual for conductors. <laughs> and he, he, he was able to sort of use that normalcy to also show a real passion in music and a, and a total, total abandon to music. And I found that really exciting and different. Um, and so I, I just loved watching him work. I loved playing in the orchestra for him. Um, and, and studying with him was just like a, a crash course in everything you needed to know as a conductor. No, it's perfect, isn't it? That's yeah. That's just what you need. And I mean, coupled with working with a wind ensemble, when you're a string player, you will have learned mm -hmm. also things there that, um, you know, I, I mean, I remember making a conscious decision when I started conducting properly in inverted commas, you know, I, uh, my career started not to program violin concertos because I wanted to mm -hmm. do, um, I wanted to learn piano concertos and I wanted to learn arias and I wanted to, learn, and, and yeah, you have to get out there and push yourself. Um, but yeah, that sounds great. I can imagine Hugh being like that because he is such an open and honest person on the podium. Um, yep. He just comes across as being himself, which, as you, exactly. as you say, some conductors don't. Um, and, yeah. and that to meet somebody that normal um, at, at such an early stage, I think, was wonderful for you. Um, yeah, he definitely emphasized that, um, you know, that orchestras have a, um, a BS detector that is owned <laughs> by no other yeah. uh, group of people. And if you're not yourself, you're not going to do well, um, yeah. no matter how good of a conductor you might be. Um, and I, I also found that his teaching was really great and that he didn't, um, he didn't sort of expect, he, he, he understood what school was for. Or in a way, I remember at my audition, we had an interview and he quizzed me on a few things. And I remember he showed me um, the horn, four horn parts in the Egmont Overture. And I didn't, he said, what are the notes? And I didn't know. I didn't, I hadn't studied transpositions at the time. And I just looked at him, you know, very embarrassing. He'd been very embarrassed. And I said, I don't know. Um, you know, is this really bad? And he said, no, this is what school is for. And you're going to learn. Hmm. And within a month, of being at school, I knew all the transpos transpositions because he taught them and I studied them in theory class. Um, so he understood what students need and he didn't sort of throw you to the wolves if you didn't know things before you got there. Mm. Right, that's good. That's wonderful. So would I be right in thinking that whilst you were still a student at uh, New England Conservatory is when you applied to participate in the 2009 Malco competition? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, which makes it even more amazing that you went on and won it. Um, what was the whole process like? Uh, it was in Copenhagen, wasn't it? So it was yes. uh, over in Europe. Uh, how long did you have from applying and being accepted to learn the repertoire? And then how long was the actual competition? Uh, and then we'll talk about winning it afterwards because that, that's another interesting topic. Sure. Um, so I 
one of the things obviously every conductor needs is experience with an orchestra. And I wasn't really having that because the lab orchestra was tiny and, um, you know, it's very hard for a, you know, 20 year old conductor to get any gigs. Um, and so I was trawling around looking for maybe an assistant job or um, a job with the youth orchestra. And I saw it was a job posting basically site uh, called Musical Chairs and the Malco competition link was there. And I never heard of it before. And I saw, you know, concerts with I think 16 Scandinavian orchestras, a very large cat, um, uh, financial prize. And I thought, you know, why not? I'll just audition for it and um, or send a video and see what mm. happens. And maybe I'll get accepted and then I can conduct and go out in the first round. But at least I can say I conducted an orchestra. <laughs> and I, I got my friends together, recorded a video, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, sent it in and expected quite literally nothing. Um, and then I got an email one day saying, we'd like to invite you to come. And I completely freaked out because I had literally never conducted any of the repertoire. Um, and I think I had, I, I will probably get this wrong, about two or three months to learn all of it. It wasn't like an insane amount of repertoire. It was, it was a lot, but it wasn't a, a, a crazy uh, list of pieces. Um, there was a classical round, a romantic round, contemporary music and concerto accompanying, and then a movement of a Brahms symphony and a piece of Nielsen because it was in Denmark. Mm. Um, so it wasn't overwhelming. Um, so I just basically started studying right away and then again got my friends together to read through all of the repertoire um, and then just hopped on the plane expecting, I didn't bring a suit for the con for the final concert. I just I didn't think it was at all possible that I could advance past the first round. Well, you, you did an Andrew Litterman. In episode two, he explains how he flew over to London to participate in the competition that he ended up winning. He said, I fully expected to go, go out knocked out in the first round and have a, a whole week sightseeing in London before I flew home again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, think it, I, yeah, I, I had bought my plane. I had, uh, you know, after you were knocked out, they kick you out of the hotel basically, or they won't pay for it anymore. Yeah. And I had... I finished conducting, I walked off stage and I called the airline to change my flight to move it to the day after the, the, the first round because I just was like, okay, that's the end of it. And um, luckily I didn't go through with it. I decided, oh, you know, I'll just wait and make sure I get knocked out <laughs> before I make the phone call. <laughs> and so through to the final and, um, and you end up winning. And as you said, uh, engagements with um, Scandinavian orchestras, the financial benefit of winning a competition. So at this point, you now have a decision to make. I'm assuming maybe maybe you didn't. It wasn't a, a difficult decision to make. Go back to school. Go back to NEC. Carry on studying uh, with you, Wolf, or immediately get on um, guest conducting all over Scandinavia and Europe and wherever else that uh, that you got gigs with. What was the thought processes immediately after winning? Um, I think I was such a deer in the headlights. I just didn't get it. Um, I, I, and it was also, by the way, of course, one of the biggest prizes was management. Yes. Um, and that, you know, instantly, it was not only those 16 orchestras, it was a, a manager looking for more and other managers coming calling. And um, I will be forever indebted to Hugh for this because I went back to school and Hugh allowed me to do my concerts, Miss two weeks of school at a time. The, the school also, NEC, I have to give them a lot of credit too. They let me miss two weeks of school, three weeks of school, little classes. Um, and Hugh 
would change the repertoire that he was teaching to help me practice the pieces that I was about to do. Wow, and amazing. also we were able to organize it over the course of three years where the bulk of the concerts were in the third year after winning. So I had a lot of time to get the repertoire ready hmm. to practice it, to learn it. Um, I only had, a, I think, three or four concerts in that first year. Um, so it was really well organized. And um, also Hugh was willing to let me um, do both, basically have a professional career and study with him at the same time. That's wonderful. Uh, and far thinking on both you and the NEC's part as well. I have one other quick question, and it comes on the back of uh, an earlier episode of Jonathan Hayward, who won the Besançon competition. And part of the prize was a sort of mentorship from uh, uh, an artist manager, um, not necessarily affiliated to a company, but somebody who would, who would be on the end of a phone when those agents, when the sharks start circling around the chum in the water, which you were, um, and, you know, talking him through decisions like moving concerts uh, later on, as you did, or which was the best manager to choose. With the Malco, did you have that? Or were you basically thrown in at the deep end and, and the sharks come circling? And then you had to decide which manager might be the best for you? Um. I was extremely lucky in this case because of my family. Um, mm. My sister had worked with a manager for, at that point, uh, 12 years. She has a very, had a very close relationship with Opus 3, um, who called right away after the competition, and she knew everybody there. My parents my, have, had all dealt with managers before, so they were able to really advise me. They came to my meetings with um, Opus 3 um, mm. to discuss how things would work and taking things very slowly. There was no rush. Um, and we decided to start with just an American agency and also the one from, from the, the competition, the Scandinavian agency that was, that kind of came with it. Mm. Um, and I was extraordinarily lucky to have that advice from the start on how to handle things and, you know, to wait to get a European manager for a year or two because I wasn't really ready for it. Mm. Um, and, I, I really definitely look back on that thinking if I hadn't had my family around who were embedded in the musical world, I would have been completely out to lunch. I was, you know, I was surprised um, at the final when a manager came up to talk to me and I called, I was calling my parents to keep them updated. I said, oh, a manager called me and she's, um, and my mom was like, yeah, we were waiting for that to happen. Like they knew <laughs> what was going to happen. So it, it was um, definitely an experience that my family ha had experienced and that I was just going to go through the first time with their help. The next thing that happened for you, I would say is one of the wisest things because, well, again, going back to Jonathan Hayward, we talked about this and uh, hopefully you'll agree with me. That the next thing you did uh, notably was to become the New York Philharmonic assistant conductor for three years. When having won a competition like that, you could have basically filled your diary with guest engagements and and not done something like being an assistant. Uh, I think it was a brilliant thing to do because being an assistant with an orchestra like that, you learn so much. And was it Alan Gilbert was chief conductor then? Yes. Um, so yeah, you've got somebody like him that you again you can learn from. Um, do you look back and think, yeah, that was the that was a really good decision? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, that was an amazing 
education in so many different ways, um, learning psychology of working with orchestras from many different guest conductors, um, just being having an office across the, the hall from the artistic administrator and hearing their discussions about like how programs should work and what guest artists to uh, invite and things like that. Um, it was a, a real education in so many different ways. Um, so yeah, it's something, again, I was very lucky to, to be able to do it. Um, and also, of course, getting to conduct the New York Philharmonic at 23 years old um, was, you know, something I never could have expected two years before that. Um, and the orchestra, you know, it's funny, the New York Philharmonic has a reputation of being quite hard nosed. Um, and they are the nicest people. They're so easy to, and they'll, they'll be mad at me for saying this. They're so, <laughs> they're so easy to work with. They are in three years of covering uh, conductors. I never saw them once be rude to anybody. They always wanted to do their very best. Mm. And so that was something really wonderful to see also. Um, that even an orchestra that maybe on its face looks a little surly actually really wants to do a great job underneath. And when they were inspired, it was a kind of experience, a really unforgettable experience to hear them when they were really rocking. Mm. Mm. Isn't it funny that um, you said that they'd be upset that you said that they were really, really nice when, you know, <laughs> public perceptions are that they could be hard-nosed. And one wonders whether, you know, I can think of orchestras in this country which have a, a public perception of being, you know, uh, frightening to conduct for the first time. And you get in there and you discover actually it's far from that. In fact, it's almost the opposite. Oh, yeah. uh, and I yeah. wonder whether it's based on, on stories and anecdotes from, let's face it, 30, 40, 50 years ago now. I think they're, so. They're not current so. anecdotes. Um, yeah. I think so. I mean, I've had one or two bad experiences with orchestras, but they weren't ones that you would expect. Actually, one was with, a, with an orchestra that was sort of famous for it. But the the ones that I've gone to where people have said, look out, mm. um, I've had nothing but pleasant times with those orchestras. Mm. Um, and, I, and my colleagues have had the same. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's, you know, it's certainly not an easy job. And, you know, everybody wants things to be pleasant and, and easy to do. But it's, it's not... Um, I think some maybe 30 or 40 years ago, the given was you were walking into a, a, a shark tank. And now I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Um, well, and, and it is one of the pitfalls that come up so often on this podcast of, get, of guest conducting first dates um, that, you know, if you're a good conductor, which you obviously are, most of the time your experiences with an orchestra for the first time will be good. But it doesn't matter yeah. how good you are. Even the greats have fallen out with an orchestra on the first date and never gone back. Um, absolutely. And, and it happens, you know, but you just have yeah. to sort of work, work a way through it. Um, yeah, absolutely. So whilst you were at New York, what were your roles? Obviously, you were covering everybody there, guest conductors and Alan Gilbert's weeks. But what did mm -hmm. you actually get to conduct? Were you doing the sort of things that assistants do elsewhere, um, family concerts or young people's concerts? Um, did you have a subscription concert in each of those three years? Um, I had, uh, I did many of the family concerts, the young people's concerts, um, which as someone who was a uh, warship Leonard Bernstein, it was very exciting to do those for me. Um, and in my final year, I did a subscription concert. Hmm. So that's good. I mean, it's, uh, what they're doing there is, is dripping you in bit by bit and not giving you a whole mm -hmm. load of stuff right at the beginning, which is a really good way of doing it. Absolutely. During your three years in New York as assistant, you were doing your roles there covering people you were also guest conducting and that would be when you first met the Lausanne Chamber Orchestra I would imagine yes yeah. yes 
what was that like? Was that love at first sight or was it uh, a drip, drip, drip of love over many visits? So it was, it was a first, it was a one shot deal. Um, I learned that they were interested. I had a meeting with the executive director before he came to one of my concerts, actually in Copenhagen of all places. Um, And then um, I went and conducted Schumann's second symphony and I did um, Strauss second horn concerto with uh, the horn solo player there. Um, And it was just a really wonderful experience. Um, Extremely warm group of people wonderful sound, uh, great energy, and it just felt really good most of the time. There was one moment actually in the rehearsals, which I still remember, where I thought I was torpedoing my chances because I was having a lot of trouble with one of those famous transitions in um, the second movement of the, of the symphony, hmm. and um, I couldn't get it to work. And um, this was just, I think I did it four or five straight times, and I was, you know, the anxiety was really coming up and finally it worked. And I just, again, a little bit like with Malco, I kind of just said, all right, well, I didn't get the job, but now just, now I can just enjoy this. And I think that helped a lot Yeah. Uh, because the next rehearsals in the concert were wonderful. And then they offered me the job. Brilliant. And you're, you've just had a contract extension through until the, the end of next season. Um, yes. What uh, you've said you're going, you're starting a Beethoven cycle. Um, in September. So obviously uh, things are opening back up there and will you be um, suitably distanced? Uh, There's enough space I'm assuming to do a Beethoven cycle. Yes, so it's a little bit unclear obviously because things change every day what the regulations will be in Switzerland. They had a decently bad outbreak but now they've really controlled it to the point where there's I think about 50 cases a day in the whole country. Um, as an American, I am extremely envious of this. And <laughs> well, as a, as a Brit, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm an American living in the UK, so I've got none of the most. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so we don't know yet. I've been in, in contact with the health, um, health and safety person in, in Lausanne, who's a violinist in the orchestra. And we've just been talking about testing and about distance. And we're just going to have to see really at the last moment what the situation looks like. Mm. But we do have enough space in the stage because it's a chamber orchestra to fit the whole orchestra on stage, even if we are uh, two meters apart. Great. Earlier, you talked about Hugh Wolf um, guiding you and teaching you a way of learning and assimilating scores. When you come to learn a new score, what is your system? Um, And do you write things in your scores? It's about 50-50 at the moment between people who write things in uh, as far as even like myself with red, blue, and black pencil, and then others who write nothing. So how do you go about learning a new score? Um, I, it, it's interesting. I write a lot in the scores, but I don't really look at them during rehearsals. Uh, like I don't look at what I've written during rehearsals, but I do write a ton, especially on like the first page of a score um, and of each movement, um, just ideas and, you know, images, things that help me sort of understand the piece. Um, so I, I have a sort of like what I think is like a 15 step basic work thing to just make sure I know the score. Um, so, you know, simple, but fundamental things like structure is number one. What is, you know, a sonata form, you know, ba- the basic large scale structure, phrase lengths, um, the character, tempo. Um, then I go through every melodic line, sort of just thinking about how I think it should be phrased, how I think it should sound, articulation, things like that. Then the next step is every accompanimental line, then um, harmonic analysis, 
looking into the history of the piece, this is not in order, I'm just kind of trying to open up my head, um, the, the historical background of why the person wrote it, what was going on in his or her life. Um, then uh, harmonic relationships between keys um, in, in the movement or in the piece, dynamic indications, expressive indications, uh, the instrumentation, so I know what order to rehearse in. Um, the, then sort of like a vague term, like what kind of sound I can try to get um, mm. from each section. Then uh, measure numbers is number 14, I think. And then mm. number 15 is actually just physically practicing the, the, the movement or the piece. Um, so that's like sort of the top level. And then obviously the ideas of how, you know, the images, the vision for it, that comes next. Um, I, I was watching during this lockdown period, a wonderful masterclass with Gergiev where he told one of the conductors, you need to bring artistic luggage onto the stage. You need to have so many ideas that they're weighing you down. You have so many ideas to say to the orchestra. And if you use 10 of them out of a thousand you have, that's great, that's a success. And so I've been trying to incorporate that even more into my work. Well, th those master devices have been a, um, uh, things like the Gurgiev one, but I'm also thinking about the Ivan Fisher ones with Concertgebouw that were recently on. They, they've been amazing during lockdown, a, a sort of food for the brain and a nice, you know, to have time to just sit and watch them. Um, those have been so extraordinary, the Ivan yeah. Fisher ones, some of the best classes I've ever seen. Mm. And, you know, the, the uh, some of the advice he's been given, I've been giving to students for ages now in Birmingham or privately, you know, uh, there was a lovely moment where you talked about, you know, find one word to describe it, throw the packaging away, <laughs> find one word to tell me what's inside that packaging. You know, you say, yep. oh, thank God somebody's telling people this. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, Hugh Wolf yeah. used to say, uh, solve this problem in three words or less. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All of the, the rubbish and guff and hot air that you hear some conductors come up with. And Fisher yeah. was just wonderful at that. I, uh, I watched them live and I, I've started re-watching them again late at night. Um, so yeah, uh, really good. Now, we have one thing in common, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which well, I'm sure we have many things in common. Uh, we're both violinists, uh, both conduct, but we also both have a podcast. Obviously, you're appearing on mine. I'm not asking for an invite onto yours, but I'm interested to know how long have you been doing it? Uh, what made you go into podcasting? Uh, yours is uh, very successful. Um, uh, 185 episodes. That takes a lot of time as well because of what you do in your podcast. So just give me some history on, on when you started it and and how it sort of evolved from there. Um, I started it now. Oh, wow. It's been over three years, like three, about three and a half years ago. Um, I have always adored Leonard Bernstein, um, especially his advocacy for music and his activism for music. Um, and I thought, what would Leonard Bernstein be doing if he was alive um, to sort of evangelize classical music? And at that time, there were almost no classical music podcasts and there definitely weren't any by musicians. Um, there were some done by uh, symphony orchestras as a sort of like program notes, but there weren't any long form podcasts as, as far as I knew at the time. Um, now, like yours, there, there, there are quite a few. Mm. Um, and so I, I just thought, why not make five or 10 episodes and see how it goes? And so I wrote up 10 episodes. I interviewed my parents. I interviewed um, a couple other people, did, a sh did some shows on pieces I was conducting. And um, I 
fully expected to release it and get a few hundred people to listen, and that would be it. Um, and just very slowly, though, I realized, first of all, that I loved doing it, and also that people were really excited about it. Mm. Um, and I got some absolutely incredible emails um, about the show, and so I thought, okay, I should keep going. And now, three years later, I think it's been downloaded over a million times, and um, it's something that I you know, is a real part of my life and I do it every day. And by the way, I'm thrilled that I have it during this pandemic period um, for financial reasons and also just for, you know, having something to do every day is to write, to record, to edit. You know, it's a real job in, in the best way now. Mm. Well, it's kept me sane, basically, <laughs> starting this, this uh, podcast um, between myself and also my manager, Sarah, finding conductors who are willing to come on working out the order of which they go, um, you know, trying to find people with new, you know, you're the first person who runs his own podcast, which is perfect yeah. because, again, it's a new new angle. Um, I, and, I, and I've been very much turned on to the whole thing. And, uh, and it, you know, each podcast has its own definite sort of uh, target audience. And, you know, with yours, you, you do a lot on the repertoire. And I'm intrigued to know what makes you choose the pieces that you choose. Um, for instance, the latest ones, uh, I dipped in and out of um, Marla Six, your first movement um, podcast the other day. Watch, what I mean, other than is Marla Six coming up in your schedule soon? I wouldn't imagine it is because of the size of the <laughs> orchestra. But what makes you choose the repertoire? Um, is it just a love of the music or do you think, or do you have people uh, say to you, can you do Marla Six, please, Josh? Um, so... Uh, often I choose based on what I'm conducting. Um, mm. So it's the easiest way. It's also a great way for me to study um, and sort of, you know, kill two birds with one stone. I can really uh, do that. Um, the other way is through Patreon, uh, which is this uh, crowdfunded, uh, it's basically a way of pledging support to a, a creator's work. Mm. Um, and so if you pledge at a certain level, you can choose a piece for me to analyze. And one person chose Mahler 6. Um, so that was fantastic for me. I got, I love doing that. Um, so in the future, I've got episodes, um, from people who have requested them on Patreon from the Brahms Requiem, Goldberg Variations, uh, Bruckner 4, Mahler 3. Um, so I've got a lot to do with those. And then also I just choose for my own interests, especially now, um, with, you know, much less work happening. Um, I can really choose and and find new things. Um, I'm trying to focus more on black composers uh, in the last couple of months and also continuing now into the future. So I'll do a show on William Levi Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony, um, the music of William Grant Still, um, music of Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Um, so it's really a chance for me to explore a lot of my interests and often to do shows on things that I can't actually manage to conduct due you know, to various reasons. Mm. Well, I highly recommend it to anybody. It's called Sticky Notes, uh, available on all good podcast download sites and uh, probably some bad ones as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, I recommend it highly. I, I've started dipping in, as I said, and I should be listening and going back through the episodes and listening some more. Josh, it's 10 questions time. The moment that all the conductors love. And <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I start as ever with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? 
So my question is, do you have to do, do, you, do I have to answer in three words or less? No, <laughs> no, there's no, no Hugh Wolf or Ivan Fisher here. You, you can okay, answer okay. in as long as, as you like. Um, so a sound I love, um, this will sound very cheesy, but uh, during the lockdown when we were able to take walks, but not do much more than that, my wife and I live near Richmond Park in London and we took a walk into Richmond Park and usually there are cars going through Richmond Park and planes flying overhead. And there, were, there was none of that at the time. This was in the uh, beginning of April. And we walked into the park, we found a quiet spot. There were no people around. Um, and we sat down um, in front of a tree and just sat there for about an hour and a half. And there was literally no sound except a couple of deer that came by. Um, and to the sound of just that nature, living in London with everything that was going on was, was you know, really spectacular so it's a specific sound uh yeah. but it was something i really loved um and on the alternate side in terms of sounds i hate um so i record my podcast in my office mm. and living in richmond you live uh quite near heathrow airport and so planes are constantly flying overhead and normal in normal life you don't care it sort of becomes white noise but when you're recording a podcast and have to stop talking every minute and a half because planes are on your flight route. Uh, your flight, the flight route for the planes is directly over your flat. Mm. That can get a little frustrating. <laughs> so I actually often have to record my podcast around when the planes are coming in from the other direction or else I just can't get it done. So that's a sound I hate. <laughs> well, it, it, dear listeners, I'm sure you've heard the odd motorbike rev up on the previous episodes because <laughs> I live on a dead straight road in Birmingham and they're yep. just reaching about between the gear change between second and third gear as they're going flying <laughs> past my house. Um, I haven't had one of the buses go past yet with the squeaky brakes, but yeah, it's it's it is annoying and because uh, I'm doing a live interview, I can't really cut them out. So, but in your yeah, show, exactly. yeah, I suppose you you have to cut them out. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? 24 hours. Um, I think I would love to take a huge walk with my wife, um, probably go see a movie, um, you know, when it's, you know, safe to see a movie, mm. um, have a great meal somewhere, um, just to be outside. Um, and that's not just because of lockdown. It, that's a general feeling that um, I love being in, in, in nature. and um, you know, being able to see, I love movies as well. So yeah, I mean, if I had a totally free 24 hours, some combination of nature, film and, and food would be, would be high on the list. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Well, Carlos Kleiber and Leonard Bernstein for sure. Mm. Um, Claudio Abado. Um, Harnincourt for a total, in a totally different style. Um, I, I adore him. Um, yeah, I think those four would be probably my top four. Kleiber, Bernstein, Abato, and Harnincourt. And a favorite current conductor? Um, Kirill Petrenko mm. in Berlin. Um, Ricardo Chailly. Manfred Hanek, I love. Um, Heitink, though I, he's technically not current because he's mm. retired, but always Heitink. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting people. Uh, well, that's the problem. Who, who who do you offend by leaving them out? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, sh I shouted over Sakuriorimo. Why don't you? Sakuriorimo, yeah, Pablo Yervi. Um, 
I think I'm, I'm, uh, Yannick Nézé-Séguin for sure. Um, Esa Pekka Salonen. Now I'm in the stage where I'm just trying to not offend people. So that uh, <laughs> if I forget anybody, I, I truly apologize. <laughs> what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Um, in terms of technically, John Adams' saxophone concerto, mm -hmm. um, which just ruined my life for a week. Um, <laughs> because it's so difficult. Um, and I actually, it's funny, I ran into him um, in Paris and I said, and he, I was like, John, thank you for writing the hardest piece I've ever conducted. He said, oh, it's not that hard. <laughs> I was like, yes, it is. It's really hard. Um, in terms of physically um, and emotionally, I would say both. Um, Shostakovich's 11th Symphony, which is oh, just yeah. so relentless and so devastating um, emotionally. Um, that That's way up there. Um, yeah, I think those those two would. I mean, in terms of the technical and the physical and emotional side, that that's that's where I would go. Well, Shostakovich Eleven was the last piece I conducted before lockdown happened. Um, oh, wow. in, in London, in concert in St John's Smith Square with the Kensington Symphony Orchestra, and okay. you know, at the time, it didn't. Maybe I was being very blasé and naive. It didn't feel, but in that now looking back, it feels like a really emotional event. You know. Mm. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's such a it's such a dark piece. Um, it is, uh, but you know, it it really it really depends on circumstances. Also, what pieces are emotional to us? Um, you know, I, I one of the most emotional performances of my life was unrelated to the music. Um, it was in it was November 9th, two thousand sixteen, um, and in it was a tour in Lausanne. We were in Zurich, and we were playing Schumann Rhenish Symphony, which is you know such a happy piece. But mm. it was the day after the two thousand sixteen election in the U.S., and I was just destroyed. And so, getting through that concert was one of the hardest concerts I've ever had to do. Um, and so, you know, now Schumann Three to me is just a piece that is joyous and is not difficult at all. But um, obviously, in, the, in circumstances, any piece can become yeah. the most difficult. Yes, that's true. That's very true. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Hmm. Well, this is a cop-out answer. Microphone because of the podcast. But I'll try to think of something actually real. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I... Even if I don't get to read it, I do really love to have a book with me. Um, just anything that, you know, will hold attention on a plane um, and in the hotel. Um, it, it's not always that I get to read it because of the, the pulls of phones and computers and things like that. But that's always the goal anyway. Yeah. Um, I find often find that the, the one time I do get to read a book is if I'm guest conducting somewhere, I'm on my own, it's a new orchestra, and you end up eating on your own. Um, exactly. I read, read, yeah, I read more then than I ever do anywhere else. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Huh. Well, I, I, to be honest, I wish that there was a completely different relationship between conductors and orchestras. Um, the, I always say, you know, conducting is like the last dictatorship that is acceptable in, in society, um, in, in democratic societies. And we, the relationship I think can be so toxic, even when it's a, a good relationship, there is, a, there is something wrong in a person making 100% of the decisions all the time. And this sort of 
uh, hero worship of maestro and things like this. So, you know, the, my favorite experiences with orchestras have been where that's not the case um, with the Deutsche Kammer Philharmonie Bremen, um, which is my favorite, one of my favorite orchestras in the world. Um, the relationship is different where the conductor does make the vast majority of the decisions, but there is a discussion, there's an openness, there's people throwing ideas back and forth. It really does feel like a chamber music ensemble. Um, and so if I, if I had a magic wand and could change something, it would be that kind of the adversarial relationship between a conductor and the musicians, mm. because I think it, it gets in the way of making music together. So true. Um, I had a couple of people say pretty much the same thing. And those collaborative experiences are so enriching and so uh, much more enjoyable than, you know, I've been to a couple of places where they're basically just sitting there waiting to be told what to do. And, and exactly. uh, yeah, and that feels, it just feels wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah. As yeah. You say, and you're right about the, the last um, job in which being a dictator, one of the last places, you know, you are basically a dictator. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, th it's a, I think it's a brilliant answer. Uh, number nine. Uh, again, this could be if you wanted to be a baseball player or whatever, anything you wanted to be or thought you might have been. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I did want to be a baseball player when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> but I... It's funny because one of the difficulties of conducting is knowing that a lot of people don't like you. And that's a problem. I've never liked that. But the something that I'm extremely passionate about other than music is politics. And so um, some sort of politic, po political activism, I would be very um, excited about. And also um, something that has grown in importance for me is um, issues surrounding animals. Um, mm. And so my wife and I would actually really love to start an animal sanctuary. Um, we haven't gotten around to it, but it's something that we we plan to do at some point. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? You know, to be honest, I'm not a super picky eater. Um, and my wife and I are vegan, which makes a lot of like the more decadent things a little bit difficult to, uh, <laughs> to achieve. Um, and so I'll be a total cop out and say that I would just like the meal and drink to be with people I care about and love. And that's all that matters to me. Not a cop out. Um, the last person I interviewed said exactly the same thing. Um, okay. So, so <laughs> it's not a cop out at all. Josh, it's been a real pleasure. Absolute pleasure. And Thanks. I hope when all of this is over, I can pop down to Richmond and have a pint and see you soon. That would be great. I'd love to meet in person. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a Spanish conductor who, after playing flute professionally in the UK and Europe, has become a highly successful conductor. He has title positions in Spain, Sweden, Ireland and the US and has recently been appointed as chief conductor in Melbourne, Australia, starting in 2022. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>